Hi, I'm Karin Zissis of ASCOA Online. Picture a world map with just 13 countries. 13 countries that are mostly islands or geographically not very big. Just one is in Europe, one in Africa, and a few are in the Americas and the Pacific. These are the official diplomatic allies of Taiwan, an East Asian island about the size of the Dominican Republic. Taiwan has had a separate government since 1949 when the Communist Party took control in Beijing. But China considers it a renegade province and has long called for one China. No country boasts diplomatic relations with both, and over the course of the past 75 years, countries have been making a choice. China or Taiwan. And choose they have. The vast majority have opted for China, the world's second largest economy, and a country that's only growing in influence. Taiwan, meanwhile, has seen its diplomatic friend list shrink. Since its democratically elected president, Tsai Ing-wen, took office in 2016, the country has lost nine allies. But wait a second. This is Latin America in focus, not East Asia in focus. So why are we talking about this here? Well, the Americas has become an unlikely battleground in this tussle, with Chinese investment in Latin America reaching $130 billion between 2005 and 2020, the country has become South America's top trading partner. On the other hand, a majority of Taiwan's allies, seven in total, are located in Latin America and the Caribbean. Taiwan's alliances in the hemisphere have an impact on its standing in the world order. This comes as Chinese warships engage in exercises just off Taiwan's shores, exacerbating tensions between Beijing and Washington which supports Taiwan without having full relations. Taiwanese ties are also a talking point in two upcoming Latin American elections, Paraguay's in April and Guatemala's in June. Gracias, Taiwan. Una, dos, y tres. Gracias, Taiwan! Guatemalan President Alejandro Jamate led locals in thanking Taiwan. It's not impossible these two countries could follow in the path of Honduras, which just recently ditched ties with Taipei in favor of those with Beijing. So as Taiwan's allies switch sides, why are there still so many countries in the Americas that are sticking with Taipei? Part of it is is just the affinity between democracies. But another part of it is that in the Caribbean economies, What Taiwan is able to provide is sufficient for the economic growth and needs of those Caribbean countries. I want to caveat that for now, right? It is sufficient for now. That's Leland Lazarus, Associate Director of Research at Florida International University and an expert on China's role in Latin America. He spoke with me about the America's status in this geopolitical tug of war what Chinese investment in the region looks like, and what Washington's role should be in all of this. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. 
podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Leland, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I wonder if you can tell us how you came to have this focus on East Asia and Latin America. Well, Karin, first and foremost, thank you so much for the opportunity and the honor to be on the show. I'll say that my fascination with China and Latin America actually started about 10 years ago when I was on the side of a dusty road in rural Panama. Uh, Let me just explain. I'm Panamanian American, and early on in college, I finally had the opportunity to go back and visit the country of my heritage and teach English in the rural area called La Villa de los Santos. And I had to walk a dusty road in order to get to the little elementary school where I taught English. And on the way to that school, there was a little shop where I'd always stop to get a little drink or some snacks. And that shop was owned by a Chinese woman and her two kids. And I was surprised. I was like, not in the city, but a rural area, there's Chinese presence. And I soon came to realize that actually Chinese families were owning these little shops, not just in the cities, not just in that town, but all throughout the country. And locals to this day, you ask a Panamanian, everybody assumes that these small shops will be owned by Chinese families or Chinese businesses. And so from there, I got just extremely interested in the Chinese diaspora within Latin America and the Caribbean, did research on that, about China's growing influence in the region. I served at the embassy in Beijing and the U.S. consulate in Shenyang as a U.S. diplomat and also in the Caribbean. And then most recently, I worked for the U.S. Southern Command as the special assistant and the speechwriter to the commander of U.S. Southern Command at this time where Southcom was trying to build out its counter-China strategy. And now I am at Florida International University leading some of our research on China-Latin America affairs and helping to teach the next generation of young people who are interested in this topic. Thank you very much for that, Leland. So let's turn to this episode's topic. In March, we saw Honduras switch diplomatic ties from Taiwan to China. And that leaves only 13 countries worldwide that still recognize Taiwan. And a surprising number of them, more than half, are located in Latin America and the Caribbean. Why is that the case? Why is the region a diplomatic battleground between China and Taiwan? Well, each country in the region has maintained relations with Taiwan for different reasons. But I think for the most part, it had to do with what they call dollar diplomacy for at least the first few decades. I want to go back to Panama and use Panama as a case study. In 1980, Taiwan created a school called El Centro Cultural Chino Panameño, Mm. the China-Panama Cultural Center. And it was really cool to go there 10 years ago. I went there 10 years ago. Mm. And students spent a third of their day learning in Mandarin, a third learning in Spanish, a third learning in English, paid for by Taiwan. And I think the fact that it was created in 1980 is an example of how back then what Taiwan was bringing to the table economically matched and surpassed what China could give to certain countries at that time. But of course, we know 
ever since China entered the WTO in 2001, uh, even before that, when Deng Xiaoping uh, did the opening up and reform, China's economy has really increased so much to the point where it's now the second largest economy in the world. And a lot of countries all over the world, including Latin American and Caribbean countries, see that as a huge opportunity. And it's specifically for that reason that, uh, unfortunately, Taiwan's allies has been dwindling over the years. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to talk about, too, is the fact that Honduras switched recognition wasn't much of a surprise because the government of uh, President Ziamara Castro, she had already given signs that she wanted to do that. Although there did appear to be particular tensions when this happened, with the suggestion that the Honduran government had asked Taiwan for $2.5 billion in aid. What should we expect to see next in Honduras in terms of Chinese ties? I'm interested in seeing what might happen now in Honduras now that it has switched recognition to China. But generally, once countries switch ties from Taiwan to China, from Taipei to Beijing, what kind of changes do we uh, start to see in those countries? Well, usually the next step is to sign an official agreement to join the Belt and Road Initiative. Already in this region, there are 21 countries that are signatories of the Belt and Road. Of course, Honduras will probably be the 22nd mm. uh, anytime soon. And with that comes the ability to get loans that otherwise would be a little bit more difficult to get from international financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF in order to finance huge mega projects. Think key infrastructure, think roads, think dams, think bridges. In Honduras's case in particular, there is the Paduca project, which is a hydroelectric dam project that actually a Chinese company is already bidding and in the process of potential construction. And what Honduras needed was the financing for that. So you had mentioned the request for the $2.5 billion. That would have paid for three things, a hospital, that Paduca hydroelectric dam, and then also assistance in helping Honduras pay down its debt, which of course the Taiwan foreign minister, Joseph Wu, had said, you know, we're not going to engage in this kind of dollar diplomacy. Mm -hmm. But I think that Honduras is a perfect example of how, from a lot of Latin American and Caribbean countries' perspective, there is no economic security versus national security, right? From their perspective, economic security is national security. And if they are able to get financing from another country in order to build needed infrastructure to help everyday people sell their crops or to get water or to get electricity, well, that is national security from their point of view. Now, can I ask you, what have been some of the things that we have seen in the countries that have switched recognition over time or some of the countries that are already in the Belt and Road Initiative? What are some of the things that we're seeing in terms of trends in the region that come with this Chinese investment? I would say you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to Chinese investment in the region. So let's start with the good. The good is that some Chinese state-owned enterprises and just Chinese private companies in general have been some of the largest investors in renewable energy throughout the region. I'm thinking specifically of a Chinese company that has financed a solar park project in Argentina. 
the largest solar park project throughout the whole region, funded by the Chinese. You have much-needed roads, like the North-South Highway in Jamaica, in order to link one end of the island to the other, funded by the Chinese. But then you have some bad and ugly. And a specific example of this is the Coca-Cola Sinclair Dam in Ecuador, which was funded by a Chinese state-owned enterprise called Sino Hydro in 2016. You fast forward to today, and there are 17,000 cracks in it. It's causing environmental erosion. Uh, local populations are protesting it. And the Ecuadorian government has actually sued Sino Hydro for such shoddy work. Mm-hmm. Now, there are two elections coming up this year in the region in which recognition of Taiwan is on the line and has become a foreign policy talking point, as a matter of fact. One is Paraguay later in April, and the other is Guatemala in June. These are also the two largest economies of the 13 countries that still recognize Taiwan. So what do these two countries mean for this diplomatic tug of war and particularly to Taiwan? Well, Paraguay's election is coming up in just a few weeks, April 30th. Paraguay is set to hold a presidential election in April, and already the opposition's candidate has vowed to break official ties with Taiwan if elected. And the current president, Mario Abdo Benitez, he's finished with his term. And the Colorado party is facing allegations of corruption. And so there's a very real possibility that this Colorado party that has been in power for quite some time will lose this election. So the current frontrunner is a man by the name of Efrain Alegre. And while Taiwan isn't necessarily front and center in the uh sort of local election discussions, there has been pressure on Paraguay from China in the past. Most recently in 2021, when we were in the height of COVID-19 and Paraguay desperately needed vaccines, it was alleged that the Chinese government approached the Paraguayan government to say, hey, if you switch diplomatic recognition, we will provide vaccines for you. Now, ultimately that did not happen, but It just shows the kind of pressure that the government was on. And domestically, I would say that the largest voice in Paraguay to switch diplomatic recognition are probably the agricultural producers uh, who want to export soy and beef to the large Chinese market. But even if that does happen, those agricultural producers will probably face stiff competition from their much larger neighbors, right? Uh, Brazil and Argentina to China's economy. And in the case of Guatemala? Guatemala's election is June 25th. And already there are over 20 presidential candidates in the race. And there's already allegations of is there fraud? Is there corruption? The front runner right now is Zuri Rios, who's the daughter of a old Guatemalan dictator, Efrain Rios Montt. And the current president, Alejandro Yamate, he's been dogged down with allegations of corruption and for going after those who've worked for the UN International Commission on Impunity in Guatemala. And just like in Paraguay, even though Taiwan is not necessarily front and center in the current debates, Last year, 
Reuters and some other news reports alleged that Taiwan had actually paid lobbying fees for the Guatemalan government to lobby in Washington. Hmm. So it's an odd news story that sort of shows the extent to which Taiwan takes in order to maintain its diplomatic recognitions with countries like Guatemala. And we also saw the president of Taiwan recently after Honduras switched recognition visiting Guatemala as well to sort of double down and try to demonstrate the close ties that these two countries have, right? Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen landed in one of the few countries in Latin America to still support her in a diplomatic battle with China for influence. If you look at the countries that still recognize Taiwan, Paraguay is the last country in South America to do so. And and Guatemala is the last Central American country that recognizes Taiwan with the exception of Belize. So these are the last two Spanish speaking, you know, Latin American mm-hmm. countries in a way. And then what what we have left are Caribbean countries. Is there some particular reason why we have these Caribbean countries that continue to recognize Taiwan and how from a Caribbean focus we see this playing out? Well, part of it is, is just the affinity between democracies. But another part of it is that in the Caribbean economies, what Taiwan is able to provide is sufficient for the economic growth and needs of those Caribbean countries, right? So mm-hmm. St. Lucia, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines. And I want to caveat that for now, right? Mm-hmm. It is sufficient for now. Mm-hmm. But I would like to share a story. I did serve at the U.S. Embassy for Barbados and the Eastern Caribbean as a foreign service officer. I was the uh, deputy public affairs officer. And I worked actually very closely with some of my Taiwan counterparts in St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and St. Lucia. And I'll never forget during the pandemic, the U.S. was going to donate 10 ventilators to St. Kitts. And we found out that Taiwan was going to donate four ventilators. And so we actually worked together to organize a joint press conference to say it's the U.S. and Taiwan together donating 14 ventilators to the people of St. Kitts and Nevis. Mm -hmm. I think that was a really powerful press conference because it showed two things. You know, one is these are the direct benefit that the local people are getting from a partnership, an alliance with Taiwan, these life-saving ventilators. And two, it it also showed publicly U.S. support for Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Taiwan really is a, a great partner for the 13 countries that are are still diplomatic allies for Taiwan. Mm-hmm. To some degree, sometimes the United States has an issue with telling our story, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it shows the the need for both Taiwan and the United States to really do a better job at telling the story and explaining the why, why it's so important to maintain those relationships. So in these countries in the Caribbean that still recognize Taiwan, Given what you've laid out in terms of what Taiwan has focused on economically in those countries, what would be a a way that those countries might actually switch recognition or be influenced to switch recognition to China? Well, one of the potential mechanisms is by a program called Citizenship by Investment. And so for listeners who might not know what that is, In the Caribbean, there are five countries that have this program, uh, Citizenship by Investment, which is exactly what it sounds like, a a wealthy 
individual can pay anything from $100,000 to $200,000 in order to get citizenship from a Caribbean country. And that provides uh, all kinds of benefits. So, for example, Schengen visa, right? Visa-free travel um, and, and other perks. The potential concern is that with an increase of wealthy Chinese individuals buying citizenship in certain countries like St. Lucia, St. Kitts and Nevis that are still Taiwan recognizers. And some of these wealthy individuals may have shady financial backgrounds. They may have direct or indirect connections to the Chinese Communist Party. It's not outside the realm of possibility that within maybe five years, 10 years or so, that those new citizens could exert political or economic pressure to have those countries switch diplomatic recognition. We have not seen that yet, but that vulnerability exists. One of the things that we've touched on a little bit is the U.S. role. And I wanted to talk to you about that because we've seen countries in the region switch recognition over the years, particularly in the past few years. We've talked a little bit about Panama. Panama switched recognition in 2017. Then El Salvador followed suit, as did Nicaragua. And around that time, some U.S. officials, including you know Senator Marco Rubio, he suggested at that time that the U.S. should cut aid to countries that switch recognition. What has the U.S. been doing more recently in terms of playing a role in this battle between China and Taiwan for recognition in the region? And what do you think it should be doing? Well, first and foremost, trying to threaten countries by cutting aid if they switch diplomatic recognition, I feel like would be very, very hypocritical, right? Given the fact that we ourselves don't officially recognize Taiwan. But we still maintain a very robust relationship with Taiwan. And I think, you know, President Biden says, you know, it's not the example of our power, but the power of our example, right? And I think in in this case, we should continue to show the power of our example in terms of our ironclad commitment to Taiwan. What does that mean on the ground? Sometimes it means things that are very simple, like inviting the Taiwanese to our independence parties, right? I mean, sometimes that, that doesn't happen because embassies or you know specific diplomats on the ground are still a bit weary about, hey, to what extent can I actually engage with my Taiwan counterparts? And if we are weary about that, imagine how our allies and partners feel on the ground about interacting with their Taiwan counterparts. So I think that's that's one, just being more clear about the terms of engagement uh, and being more public about supporting Taiwan. Two, we can encourage countries who switch diplomatic recognition to still maintain unofficial relations with Taiwan, just like the United States does. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to you from Miami, and there is a Taiwan Economic and Cultural Office here in Miami, which is amazing. They do amazing work. And Taiwan, by the way, is, the I think, the sixth largest user of the port of Miami, which is an interesting hmm. stat. But for all intents and purposes, it is a consulate, right? Why aren't more countries doing that? I know some answers uh, may be that they may be afraid of economic repercussions on the part of China. Well, then in that case, That's another way in which the United States and our allies and partners can support countries that decide to maintain relations with both. I immediately think of Lithuania as the most recent example, right? They set up a Taiwan economic and cultural office. Uh, They suffered economic coercion on the part of China. 
but received economic support from their European partners and their U.S. partners. Mm -hmm. I think we can do a lot more of that. We have just this month seen uh, Chinese military action uh, in Taiwan's waters. We've seen some concerns about how united Europe is uh, in support of Taiwan. I'm curious, how do you see Taiwan's diplomatic relations in the Americas playing into this, this sort of struggle over maintaining ties in the Americas? How does that play into this larger geostrategic issue of a potential Chinese incursion into Taiwan? Certainly from Taiwan's perspective, the allies that remain, the 13 that remain, are still so important in advocating for Taiwan's participation in international organizations. That's huge, absolutely huge. But on the other hand, even if Taiwan doesn't have any more official allies, its unofficial allies I would argue, are even more important, right? The United States, Japan, South Korea, European countries. And the U.S. has really made a concerted effort over the past few years to make sure that our allies and partners are in lockstep in our ironclad support for Taiwan. And so you see increased participation on the part of some European countries in the freedom of navigation operations along the Taiwan Straits and elsewhere in the Pacific. You have countries that are still maintaining a robust economic relationship with Taiwan. And I think more and more countries really recognize that if there is some sort of conflict over the Taiwan Strait, that would be absolutely catastrophic for the global economy. With those countries that have already switched recognition to China, what can Taiwan do? Are there examples in the region where Taiwan has maintained ties? When we talked about things got a little bit tense uh, in the case of Honduras, are there examples, would, would there be a case in Honduras where Taiwan could still maintain ties? Well, we started with Panama. I'll end with Panama. Panama, even though switched diplomatic relations from Taipei to Beijing, what I understand is that they still have a very robust trade relationship with Taiwan and that there is still a Taiwan trade office in Panama. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, a good a- example. I think much uh, larger countries could consider doing the same. And the United States should support such initiatives. Great. Lilan, as you pointed out, let's start and end with Panama. Thank you so much for joining me today. Karin, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zessis. This episode was produced by John Orbach, and our executive producer is Luisa Lemmy. You can find links to Leland Lazarus's work on Latin American-Taiwanese relations in the podcast notes. The music in this podcast is El Choclo, performed by Sergio Reyes and Emilio Tuval for America Society. Check the podcast notes for links to the full video and find out about upcoming concerts at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Help us spread the word. Write us a review, give us five stars, or subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. You can message us on Twitter at ASCOA 
or check the podcast notes for an email address where you can write us with comments, questions, and tell us what you'd like to hear about on the podcast. Thank you for listening.